Amen. All right, ushers, take up the offering. Pastor Tim? Uh, yeah, help me introduce the speaker. Oh, sure. I know that the Lord really blessed you this uh, Man Up weekend through uh, Dr. Mark's uh, ministry. Yeah. And I thought you'd be great because, I mean, he didn't do anything through me. But anyway, that's right. Oh, wow. Wow. You see that? Yeah. Is that happening all weekend to you? Yes. Yes. That means he likes you. The mock is love. Thank you, Pastor Luke. I appreciate that. And they, they, we all appreciate it. We all love it. Anyways, uh, give him a great introduction. I will. I will. Well, Pastor Mark's a great man of God. I've heard many stories about you because I had some friends who were at ORU. While you were there, they loved you dearly. No bad reports whatsoever. Amen. And I love you dearly, too. I've read your book, Relaunch. Helped me a lot. Helped this church a lot, actually, in a season where we were relaunching. It helped us a lot. You've done great things for us as a body, and I believe you're going to continue to do great things for us. Cornerstone, will you give him a warm welcome to Dr. Mark Rutland? Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, it is just great to be here. Thank you for that gracious introduction. And uh, I'm delighted to be back here. I love the spirit in this church. I uh, had a great time with the men. They were rowdy. Whoa, man, it was great. Great to see 500 plus men really pressing into God, worshiping. There is, there's some, I don't mean that in some sexist way, but it's just great to see men of God pressing into the, the God who loved them and worshiping. And this church really leading the way there were. 25, 30 churches, I guess, represented. Pastor Tim brought the pastors up on the platform and introduced them. And, and that was great to see them honor those pastors. And it, it was wonderful. And I have had a great time here this morning. Pastor asked me if I would um, speak a different message in the second service. So I'm going to do that. I want to speak this second service on a topic that relates to one of my books. Let me tell you about the books that are out there. Um, this book, I know that one of the women's study groups is using this, uh, and I'm delighted with that. This is David the Great. This is a book on the life and leadership of King David, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you. This, this book, what I wanted to bring forward was the complex genius that is King David. And he's a great man, a great person. I mean, who can, who can write poetry that is still read and loved 3,000 years later in two of the world's great religions? And yet, a man of deep uh, troubles and, and uh, his sins were dark and, and his repentance was powerful. And I think sometimes we've skated over the surface of King David. Now, I hope you'll enjoy this book. Uh, these two books are sort of companion pieces. This book I wrote first. This is called 21 Seconds to Change Your World. It's about the connection between the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. They are deeply connected. For one thing, they were written by two men a thousand years apart, born in the same small remote village. And, uh, and I hope that you will enjoy it. Somebody asked me why 21 seconds. That's how long it takes to pray the Lord's Prayer, about 21 seconds. Um, unless you're from Alabama, it takes 45 seconds. In New York, 11 seconds. 
But this is Courage to be Healed. Uh, I want to speak on inner healing. This is a book about inner healing, healing from damaged emotions. I want to speak on that this morning. I hope it will be useful to you. I, obviously, I'm not going to lecture on the whole book, give you the whole thing. Uh, nothing would be more tedious than that. But I, I, I want to give you some ideas out of this. I hope that you will get it. And this book has exploded for us. I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I, I, it never dawned on us that this book would sell like it, like it has. I was hoping we would meet a need, and evidently we touched a, a vein, and it's just exploded. And I'm, I'm thrilled, thrilled with what's happening there. It probably doesn't matter to you to hear this. It's important to me to say it. I do not take anything personally for the sale of any books worldwide. Even the royalties from the publisher pay straight to Global Servants. I don't take anything for speaking here, love offerings, honoraria, book sales, everything. That all goes to the foreign missions program at Global Servants, particularly our girls' homes in Southeast Asia and West Africa. So I hope you'll go out there to the book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. <laughs> Luke and I have agreed. Our goal was for you to leave here today broke. Refinance your house. Take the children's lunch money. Whatever. (laughs) All right, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to the gospel as Luke records it, the fifth chapter. I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. Luke 5 and 17, and it came to pass as he, now that is Jesus, of course, and it came to pass as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went up on the housetop and let the man down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto him, that is the man in the bed, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts, whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. Now pause just a moment. Look what he's saying. He's saying anybody can say, Your sins are forgiven. But how do you know I have the authority to do that? By the same token, anybody could say, Rise up and walk. How do you know I have the power to do that if they walk. So if I say rise up and be healed and they are healed, then you know I have the authority to forgive sins. So he turns the Pharisees' judgment back on them. He says, if I can do this, then it proves that. And what did they say? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So he actually uses their criticism of him to prove that he is indeed God on earth. Verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. And here he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise up, take up thy couch. Doesn't mean couch like a sofa in your house. 
It just means that on which he lay, probably a, a, a blanket or a bedroll, something like that. And go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. Put your hand on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, I pray that you will come and brush aside all of our carefully constructed mechanisms of self-defense. All the, all the things we've learned through the years to fend you off, to keep you from entering in and dealing with us. Knock them aside, we pray. We're not asking that you would make this easy for us. We're asking that you will make it real. That when we leave here today, we will say one to another, Surely the Lord hath spoken unto me. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. I wonder if you've had the opportunity or the, the um, uh, reality as I have on several occasions and as I had with this passage, where something that you have read understood a certain way many times, suddenly something leaps off the page and arrests your attention and and it looks and feels completely different. There there were two things in this passage that I'd never really considered. The first was this, a simple word. I read it, I read it to you this morning, but I just always skimmed over it. I didn't really see it and I didn't see its implications. It's the simple word, them. It says, and the power of God was present to heal them. Who is them? This is the clearest description of any audience to which Jesus spoke in his entire ministry. It was a room packed with Pharisees and doctors of the law from the whole country. That they said from Judea, from, from the Galilee in the north, and from Jerusalem itself. It's packed with the with the religious intelligentsia of all of Israel, have filled the house up to hear Jesus speak. And it says, and the power of God was present to heal them. I always read it or understood it in my mind, and the power of God was present to heal. But that's impersonal. Do you see that? That makes the power of God present, but it doesn't deal with the personal reality. But listen to this. And the power of God was present to heal them. But none of them got healed. That could mean two things. One is it could mean that nobody in the room had a need of any kind. But I find that highly unlikely. That in any group that large, that there was nobody there with emotional damage. Nobody there with bitterness. Nobody there with unforgiveness. Nobody there with physical affliction of any kind. None of them had any emotional, spiritual, or physical need. I don't believe that. The second possibility is that there was something in them that kept them from being healed. And the power of God was present to heal them, but none of them got healed. The reason is because they were there on their own agenda. They were there to critique Jesus, not receive Jesus. They were there to judge Jesus, not to be judged. They, they were there to put him under a microscope and judge his ministry, hoping, as they tried to do with his words rise and be healed, to catch him out. 
in some way that they could bring an accusation against him. As long as we come before God operating on our agendas, we insulate ourselves from his healing grace. It's when we lay our agenda down and step in under his agenda that that our healing begins. Because his agenda is healing. None of them got healed. The second thing in the story was not about them. It was about the man lowered to the rooftop. I've read that story. I've preached on it. I suspect some of you have preached on it or taught Sunday school lessons or read it. There was one thing in the story that somehow it never dawned on me. If you hear a million sermons on this passage from Luke chapter 5, you're going to hear one of two themes lifted up. One is the healing power of Jesus. Praise God. That needs to be lifted up. The other is the faith of the friends who take him up on the roof. A perfectly valid spiritual motif. But there's a third reality in the story. And that is the courage of the man on the bed. It never occurred to me. Look, he is entirely, for want of a more politically correct term, can I say it? He's entirely crippled. He cannot defend himself. He can't help himself. And he's going to let these men take him up onto the roof of a building, pull away the tiling, tie ropes around the four corners of his bed, and lower him into the room. This is a high-risk operation. It never occurred to me before. I don't know why. What if they had dropped him? Furthermore, who is in that room? Pharisees and doctors of the law. The prevailing Pharisaical theology at that time was that if you were sick or afflicted or poor or whatever, that it was because God had done it to you because you deserved it. Therefore, he knows he's going to be lowered into a room full of people that are judging and condemning him. Furthermore, we have Luke chapter 5. We know how the story ends. Sometimes I think that, peop- that we think people in the Bible are acting out Bible stories. He didn't know, he didn't know how this is going to end. What if they lower him into the middle and Jesus says, I'm in the middle of my lesson here. Get, get that thing out of here. Just another shattered hope. Just another failed attempt. This is a high-risk operation. So at some point... His four friends tied the ropes around the corner of his blanket and they looked at him and said, all right, are you ready? At that point, their faith was not the variable. It was his courage. I believe that faith is a variable and I believe it is a variable in all healing, but in emotional healing, in the healing of our damaged internal selves. I believe that the greater variable in getting healed is courage. It takes great courage to allow the Holy Spirit to hold that mirror up and say, if you're going to get healed on the inside of you, this is who we have to deal with. Quit blaming your in-laws and the Democrats and whoever it is and look in the mirror and say, I need to be healed. I... uh, I was the associate pastor at a huge, huge church many years ago in in, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, the Mount Perrin Church of God. And on the campus there, we had the PSI, Psychological Studies Institute, which evolved to become a freestanding university. But at that time, it was a counseling center right on the campus. So those of us with doctorates on the staff of the church were required to do some amount of counseling. 
So the people who came were not from the church. We didn't know them. They just showed up for counseling. And so the first time we would see them, this one lady came. She came in my office. When she walked in the door, she was so mad she could hardly talk. She says, well, I guess you want to know why I'm here. I said, well, that's a good place to start. Why are you here? She said, I'll tell you exactly why I'm here. Men, she said, men are pigs. She said, they're just selfish swine. She said, I've just been through my fifth divorce. That's why I'm here. Count them. One, two, three, four, five. And she said, all five of them were just drunks, alcoholics. She said, God, I hate men. I'm sitting there thinking, lady, You've only been in my office five minutes. I feel like I could use a drink. (laughs) It never seemed to dawn on her that she was also in those stories. Look, if you're at odds with every member of your extended family, has it crossed your mind that amidst all the variables, the constant is you? We, we all are getting healed from something. Life kicks you in the head. We're all getting healed of something. We've all been wounded, whether it's some second grade teacher that tells you you're stupid or your father who tells you you're fat or a failure or a job you've lost or whatever it is. Life damages our emotions. And therefore, we need the healing power of Christ inside of us. And sometimes... Damaged emotions are infinitely more destructive and crippling, if I can use that phrase, than anything that can happen to our skeletal structure. Now, having said all that, I, uh, after 50 years in the ministry, I've come to believe that there are basically five main streams of toxic poison that flow through lives. There's certainly a vast multiplicity of variations on these five rivers. But I believe that basically the poisons that flow in lives fall into these categories. Shame, unforgiveness, rejection, condemnation, and fear. Shame, unforgiveness, rejection, condemnation, and fear. Those rivers flow through a life and bring a level of toxicity That flows not only into the life, but out from the life. And they become toxic fountains to people around them. Now, what do we mean by toxicity? It just means that that feeling that something is wrong. Something is poisonous about this life. it's It's the guy in your family who ruins every Thanksgiving. It's the the woman in the office that everybody is praying. Maybe today will be the day she's too sick to come. Uh, It's it's just that, that toxic personality. Or even less than that, sometimes not highly destructive, but that you just sense something is wrong here. Often. It's simply because they have not really dealt with and allowed Jesus to heal them from some of these wounds. The second thing people deal with is they struggle with the idea, especially in the church, oddly enough, in the church. People struggle with the idea about getting counseling. 
They're just not sure that it's right or that Christians should do that. You ever see these angry Pentecostal evangelists on TV railing on counseling? Counseling's not from God. Psychobabble, not, that's not Jesus. Whenever I hear them, I always think the same thing. You need counseling. <laughs> well, let's talk about counseling. Look, today, I've watched as the pastor, I love the the healing ministry, the gentle, unaffected way it happened. Just beautiful. It was, it was organic, if I can use that term. Pastor called you forward. People just came. But if you come forward for healing, physical healing of some kind, a human instrument, one of the prayer counselors or whatever you call them, lays hands on you and you know they can't heal you. What they're believing is that the healing power of Christ flows through them and into you. Likewise, what if you need emotional healing, mental healing? Isn't Jesus also called the wonderful counselor? Then why couldn't his healing virtue flow through a trained and gifted instrument that his wonderful counsel would come into you? A third reason that I think people struggle with getting counseling is that they're afraid it'll go on and on forever. They, they think there's no end game. Listen to me. <laughs> no counselor wants to see you every week for the rest of their lives. <laughs> no, there is an end game. What God wants is not simply the process of counseling. What he wants is for you to be whole and well. And the man took up his bed and departed glorifying God. That's the end game, is that you walk out of the office carrying the burden which you carried in, which carried you in, and glorifying God. Well, let's just deal with a few of these. As I say, I'm not going not to go through the whole thing. I've got a grid in here on page 17, I think it is. It shows every one of these toxic rivers, the, the throne or the stronghold out of which they flow, the, the, the therapy, the biblical therapy that will bring healing in the end game. What, do, what does God want? But I'm not going to deal with the whole thing because if you want that, you have to buy the book. <laughs> Actually, multiple copies, hundreds of copies each. But let's take one. Or two. We'll see how much time we have. First, and I believe one of the most destructive of all toxic rivers is shame. And shame is a deep inner wound. The, a, 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 a slash mark across the deepest part of your psyche. So, here's a man at the peak of his career. He's 50, successful well-educated, great business, who is at risk of losing everything. He has become toxic in his home. His marriage has fallen to pieces. He's filled with anger. He's toxic at his work. And now, at the peak of his career, because of some reckless moral behavior, he's at risk of losing everything. So he finally agrees to come for counseling, but he is angry about it when he walks in the door. As we begin to work back through his life, as we move closer and closer to early adolescence, he becomes angrier and angrier 
more defensive. I don't want to do this. This is not why I came here. I thought we were going to talk about now. Why are we doing this? I don't want to go there. Angrier and angrier and angrier until finally it erupts like Vesuvius that the summer before his 15th birthday, he was violently and brutally raped. Not, not inappropriately fondled. He was raped. And it erupts out of him with huge toxic anger. And we begin to try to deal with it, to talk about it. But he, he, can't, he can't say the word. He keeps saying things like, since that happened, since I, my junior high, since those people came in my life, all of that. He resists the word rape. Why? Because every toxic river flows out of, you can call it a stronghold or whatever you want to. I, for the purpose of this book, I call them thrones. So the toxic river of shame flows out of, the, out of the, the throne of deception. Every shame hangs on a lie or a set of lies. So here's a young boy. Look, a 14-year-old, regardless of what he thinks, a 14-year-old is a child. So in his child's mind, this phrase comes to him, only a woman can be raped. So therefore, if it is rape, then who is he? If it isn't rape, then how? maybe he's culpable. That's what Satan says. In a crowd this size, I don't know you. I'm just saying in a crowd this size, I can assure you there, there are probably multiple women here in this room who experienced sexual trauma as a child and maybe more than one man. What Satan says is to the man, if it was rape, then who are you? If it wasn't rape, then maybe you were responsible in some way. Maybe you were seductive. Maybe you didn't fight as hard as you should have. So he builds up this whole life of toxic anger. Nobody will ever dominate me again. Nobody will ever take advantage of me again. Nobody will ever control me. He becomes ruthless in business. He becomes angrier and angrier, building up this thing and suppressing this reality. The power of the human mind to engage in personal deceit, in denial, is greater than you think. You can deny and deny and deny and deny until finally it goes up in smoke. And he piles up with with this under the floorboards of his life. He piles up anger and competition and success in business and success in sports. And this angry toxicity is piled up on top of it. What's the problem? The beast is under the floorboards. So when we pull it back, it erupts with this level of anger. So finally, after a long time and after some very difficult and angry confrontations... He finally says, okay, rape. Now are you happy? I said, I'm not happy, sir. I'm not happy. He said, well, why did I have to say it? I said, was it true? Is that what happened? He said, yes, it's what happened. I said, then you see, the therapy for deception is in the Bible. You shall know the truth. And the truth will make you free. I wonder if any of you in this room happen to know what is carved into the wall of the lobby of the Central Intelligence Agency. It says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm not saying anybody in that building believes that. I'm just saying 
that it's on the wall of the lobby. That's all I'm saying. So as he begins to deal with the reality of that, now he can process the fact that what happened, the shame, is real. The shame of sexual molestation and trauma is real. But now the shame can go where it belongs. The shame of sexual molestation is not on the victim, it's on the violator. So now he's able to place that shame which has haunted him his whole life. Now he's able to place it where it belongs. That the shame of sexual trauma belongs on the people who perpetrate it, not on the people that are attacked. There there are all kinds of these stories that I could give you. I I want to just deal with a couple of more of these. One is is rejection. Ejection, rejection is one of the most socially toxic of the poisons. Uh, People who suffer from rejection tend, oddly enough, to cultivate social habits which will cause you to reject them. They feel rejected and therefore they cause, they cultivate habits to force you to reject them. And then it's as though they can say to the universe, aha, see there. What, what can be the healing out of that if rejection rests in the doubt about the character and nature of God? So what is the healing And the the healing of that is trust in the character and nature of God. Ephesians chapter 1 says, we are accepted in the beloved. If God accepts you, what power in heaven or hell or earth can reject you? So the healing that comes, comes from the understanding of the true character and nature of God. Condemnation is a strange one. People don't understand where con- uh, unforgiveness is toward others. Condemnation is self-unforgiveness. You ever hear people say this? If you've ever said it, I know you'll never say it again. You ever hear this? I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. That's, that's the, the mantra of condemnation. Well, what is, what's the healing power for that? And it's this. It's worship. I know that seems strange. I'm not talking about singing in church. That is worship. But that's not what I mean. I'm talking about putting God on the throne of my life and not my own self-judgment. What is the therapy for condemnation? I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. The therapy is harsh. It's hard therapy. You know what it is? Somebody says, I know, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. What do you say to them? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? God Almighty says there is therefore now no condemnation and you say, oh yes, there is. You have placed your own self on the throne of judgment and therefore you are judged. But when you remove that and place God on the throne of your life in true worship, the answer is liberty. And you begin to come into the trust of the character and nature of God. Let me give you one last one and we'll wrap this up. I don't want to, I'd love to come and do a whole seminar on inner healing, but for the purpose this morning. Fear. Fear grips many lives at all kinds of levels. Fear shrinks your life. What is the throne out of which all fear flows? It's pain. Either 
pain in the past that I arranged my life in some way that it will never be repeated. Nobody will ever do that to me again. Nobody will ever hurt me. I'll never go there. I'll never go into that. Or fear of pain imagined in the future. That can actually be worse. Scientists tell us, and it is true, I believe, that you cannot actually remember the physical sensation of a pain. You can't actually recall the, the exact sensation of the pain. You remember that it hurt. So you create a narrative to deal with it one way or another. But you can't actually remember that it hurt. I said that in a church recently, and this lady kind of jumped me in the lobby after. And she said, you, you know that thing about you can't remember how something hurts? She said, you only say that because you never had a baby. I said, now, ma'am, I bow before your experience. But I would just ask you one question. Did you only have one? She said, no, I had three. I said, but see, don't you see? The fact that you repeated it twice more proves you don't really remember the first one. But the greater pain is imagined pain. Do you ever have this experience? You take a child, a perfectly normal, sweet child, to the doctor and for an injection, and the nurse comes in with a hypodermic needle, and your sweet little child goes demon-possessed. <laughs> have you ever had that thing screaming and crying and crawling under the table and fighting the nurse and everything? It's because he creates a... An, Uh, A narrative of imagined pain. This is going to be worse than anything ever. They're going to stick it in my eye. These people are trying to kill me. My head will explode. And so he tries to insulate himself from the possibility of pain. That, That shrinks your life. I can't, I have no risk. I can't take an adventure. I can't move there. I can't do this. It causes people to be unable to make commitments. It causes, it, it freezes of the entrepreneurial spirit. I can't go there. I have to shrink my life. So a, a very successful businessman, when I was pastoring in Orlando, he brought me into counsel with his elderly mother who was suffering from agoraphobia. Agoraphobia, uh, from the Latin word agora for the marketplace. Phobia, fear. The fear of being out, being with people, going into a place. So finally, it had shrunk her life where she couldn't even go out of her house. Her children in their 50s had to bring her everything. So, of course, to start the counseling, I had to go to her house. And I began by trying to convince her with statistics and some other things. There had never been anybody hurt at the shopping mall. Her daughter was a safe driver. All these things. I didn't make a dent. So I decided to reverse field, and I started telling her all the bad stuff that could happen to her in her house. I said, ma'am, you haven't been out of your house in a long time. I said, this neighborhood has gone down. She said, what? I said, oh, when I drive up your street, I lock my door. She said, what are you talking about? I said, I get out in your driveway and I run up here and ring the doorbell. She said, are you trying to help? I said, well, ma'am, I'm just telling you, you live here in this neighborhood all alone. Somebody break in here, kill you, cut your head off. She said, Dr. Rutland, are you trying to help? She said, this doesn't feel like help. So what is the therapy for fear which shrinks your life? We know the therapy for fear. The Bible tells us perfect love casts out all fear. But the fact is perfect love is not a theory. He is a person. 
So therefore we began this elderly lady and I walking through her house week after week, room after room. Is Jesus in this room? Is Jesus in the kitchen? Is Jesus in your bedroom? Is Jesus in the living room? Is Jesus in the house? We began sensing his perfect love. She's not afraid in the house. Could Jesus be in the yard? Could Jesus be in your daughter's car? Could Jesus be at the shopping mall? I will never forget the day that her 55-year-old wealthy businessman son called me on his cell phone. He said, Dr. Mark, I'm sitting in my mother's driveway. You're not going to believe what I'm seeing. My mother is standing all alone in the front yard watering the flowers. Jesus breaks the power of fear. He wants us free of that. Well, let me, let me close with this, and I'll, I'll bring this to a conclusion here. One last objection. I hear people say, the thing is, Jesus never did this kind of inner healing. Well, <laughs> yes, he did. What about the passage of the man lowered through the rooftop? Everybody is thinking of the physical level. Everybody, and probably even the man on the bed. But what's the first thing Jesus says? He doesn't deal with that. He says, your sins are forgiven. He deals with the inner wound of condemnation before he deals with the physical damage that he has. There's even a better place in scripture for it. John chapter 21. Following the crucifixion, you want to talk about a group of wounded people damaged emotionally. It's the apostles. They're dealing with disappointment, disillusionment. They thought they had the stairway to the stars and all they got was an elevator shaft. The guy they thought was Messiah is dead. Furthermore, one of their number has fallen to the toxicity of condemnation at such a place that he commits suicide. Their big guy, Simon Peter, he is filled with shame because he not only failed and fell, he failed and fell publicly. They all knew it. He's turned out to be a coward and denied Christ three times, having been told that he would. He does it anyway because he is, he is guilty of self-preservation. They're pretty beat up. So Peter says, I can't do this anymore. I'm going back to what I used to know before Jesus came into our lives. I'm going back to fishing. They said, we'll come with you. They go back to the lake. They get in the same boat, cast the same nets, fish all night and catch nothing. The next morning, there's a man on the shore and he says, cast your net on the right and you will catch. They do that and the nets bulge. Do you remember? This is the recreation of the scene where they first met Jesus. They pull the nets up and they bulge and the other boat has to come. And Jesus says, henceforth, I will make you fishers of men. He takes them back into the recovery of a memory to remind them of how they met. And it is John, the contemplative, spiritual revelator, John, not not Simon Peter. I love Simon Peter. He's as thick-headed as we are. He doesn't see Jesus. John says, that's Jesus. And Peter does the most astonishing thing. He, He jumps in the lake. Don't you know the other disciples said, well, okay. They're rowing the boat to shore. Peter swims on ahead of them. Why? 
Because he knows he's going to take a licking. He's going to take a tongue lashing and he doesn't want his friends to watch. He knows that when he gets there, Jesus is going to say, you craven, gutless little rat. I told you you'd deny me three times before the rooster crows. What did you say? Oh, no. Oh, no. Let this other, these others will deny you. I'll go right to the cross with you. And I heard you. They led me across the courtyard in ropes. And I heard you say, I never heard him. You deny me three times the third time with a curse in your mouth. And then you looked at me in the eye as we walked across, as I walked across the courtyard. And that's the denial you gave me. So the others can have breakfast. You just sit over there on a rock and shut up. He knows that's what's going to happen. And he doesn't want the others to watch. As he approaches Jesus, Jesus is cooking breakfast. And before Peter can make any speech of repentance or forgiveness or anything else, Jesus welcomes him for breakfast. Now, as Peter comes up out of that lake, when you come in on a cold, snowy night in Michigan and you come into a room where there's a fireplace, it's, it's inside of you. You can't stop yourself. You come toward that fire. It, am I right? Or if it's a really cold night, right? <laughs> so there's a campfire there and Peter comes forward to warm his hands. There are only two places in the entire New Testament where a charcoal fire is mentioned. One is here. The other is in Caiaphas' courtyard the night that Peter betrayed Jesus. It says Peter warmed his hands on a charcoal fire. So the last time they've seen each other, Peter is warming his hands at a charcoal fire. Do you know Jesus? No. It says a third time with a curse. Do you know Jesus? No. Do you know Jesus? No. Do you know Jesus? Hell no. They said, well, now we believe you. The rooster crows. They lead Jesus across the courtyard in ropes. And his hands are over a courtyard, over a charcoal fire. And their eyes meet. Now Peter comes up out of the lake. Jesus is cooking. There's a charcoal fire. He puts his hands out and looks into the eyes of Jesus. And the scene of his shame and failure is recreated not to condemn him, but to take him back to it and see that Jesus is in it with him. When Jesus enters the moment of your shame, he begins to heal you in the shame and from the shame. Three other things. Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me, Lord? You know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Why three times? He allows him to be healed of the three stages of his denial. He takes him right back through it. You denied me. Do you still love me? Heal me. Heal me. Heal me. That's what we say to Jesus. Lord, you've seen everything I've ever done. You see my shame. You see my condemnation. You see my fear. You see my rejection. Heal me, O Lord. Save me and I shall be saved. Heal me and I shall be healed. And then Jesus says all three times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Because he is not just forgiving him, he is restoring him. Not only to fellowship and relationship, he is restoring him 
to ministry. Shame makes us feel disqualified. And Jesus says, I am the source of your qualification who am also the source of your healing. And then he invites them all to eat. Well, I'll close with this little brief thing. I'm sort of like St. Paul in the book of Ephesians. He said finally and wrote three more chapters. But, but here it is. I came across a survey some years ago. It's fascinating. Put out by a magazine. It was just a silly survey. They asked, what is your favorite thing that you like to hear somebody else say to you? What do you enjoy hearing someone else say? They took all the thousands of answers and came up with the top three that Americans want to hear someone else say to them. I guess number one. Can't you? Because we we are obsessed with it. If this phrase went out of the English language, the Hallmark Channel is going under. What is it that people most want someone else to say to them? I love you. Sure. I love you. We love to hear somebody else say, I love you. The second one shocked me. Do you know what it was? I forgive you. I think we walk around with such a load of guilt and condemnation. And apart from the church and the proclamation of the gospel, we don't know what to do with it. You know what I think? I think you stand on a street corner in downtown Detroit. And as people walk by, you could just say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Some people walk back and say, hey, thanks, man. I'll never do it again. We don't know what to do with condemnation. You know what the third one was? This will kill you. You know what the third most popular phrase we want to hear somebody else say to us? Supper's ready. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I heard I was laughing just like you are. And it hit me. I said, OMG. That's the whole law and the prophets. That's the gospel. That's everything that we know and believe and teach. Pastor Tim, every time you serve Holy Communion in this church, you stand behind the sacred table of grace and offer the elements of healing. And you really only have three proclamations to make. God says, I love you. I forgive you. Come and dine. Come and dine, the master calleth. You can feast at Jesus' table all the time. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes all over the house? Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for your healing love and your mercy usward, generation after generation, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter how many times we've failed you, you still love us. Now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you would say, Dr. Mark, will you pray for me? I need healing. I'm tired of dealing with my brother-in-law. I need healing. My emotions have been damaged on this road, and I need healing. Will you pray for me? You can just lift your hand and take it right back down. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes. Over here, there is some back there. I'm way back over here to my left. Yes, sir. Yes, 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 yes. It's always interesting to me how many are women. I think that's probably because they're surrounded by men. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I'm so proud of you. It is easier for Christians to admit cocaine addiction 
to admit than to admit that they are angry, hurt, and wounded. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will heal us and we shall be healed. Save us and we shall be saved. Lead us into those places of healing. Lead us to people and sources of healing. And may this church, I pray, be such a fountain of healing that the most wounded, hurting people in this area would come here saying, I need to know the Jesus who healed you, that he may also heal me. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and God bless Cornerstone Church. Oh, that was powerful, powerful, powerful. Felt like I was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Do you guys feel that way? Like the Lord just right here ministering to you. And yeah, so uh, I'm not sure how many books we have out there still, but uh, what, is this $10, $20? What is this? Okay, the very first book you buy is 20 then each additional book is 10 Anyway, so... I have this book. I haven't read it yet, so that'll get me moving on that. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so very much, uh, Dr. Mark. That was just fantastic. Felt like God was speaking to my heart as well. You guys doing good? Good to be in the house of the Lord. Be blessed, be encouraged, be strengthened. God loves you. God has forgiven you. And God wants to be your best friend. You believe that? Amen. Go in the grace of God.